two chapters uh, today as we finish our series looking at the life of Abraham. So if you want to open up to Genesis chapter 23 and you can find that on page 23. I'm going to pray and then we're going to look at God's word together. Um, Father, we thank you so much for the life of Abraham uh, and we thank you um, ultimately that we see uh, your son, Jesus Christ. Um, Father, please use these words now to speak to us and to help us to keep trusting in him and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come to the last couple of chapters of Abraham's life uh, and um, we don't have anything new for Abraham in terms of there's no new word, there's no new vision. Uh, Pretty much Abraham is sort of seeing out the remaining years of his life. And as we look at chapters 23 and 24, um, you would have noticed in chapter 24, um, we have a marriage proposal. uh, But in chapter 23, it's predominantly a business deal. And so if you've come to church thinking you're going to get advice romance tips or uh, advice about business deals, uh, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Um, Because chapter 23, although it talks about a business deal, it begins with the sad news of Sarah has died. Uh, This is Abraham's wife. And of course, Abraham is uh, devastated and he grieves over Sarah. But even though the weight of the emotion of having lost your wife, um, the chapter uh, is, is predominantly about buying land. Uh, and it's so, in some sense, why has the Bible writer given so much attention to this business transaction? Uh, yes, it is a burial site for Sarah, but why does it get so much Uh, time uh, in the Bible? Why is it so significant? And so I want to answer that question of why we're paying so much attention to a uh, particular land deal and it's my first point is this, Abraham expects God to fulfill his promises beyond the grave. And so if you're taking notes, that's my first thing I want us to see. The reason why this idea of purchasing a bit of land is in here is to show us that Abraham expects God to fulfill his promises beyond the grave. He buys this piece of land believing um, that uh, God can answer the inheritance uh, after he has died. And so God had promised the land of Canaan to Abraham. uh, And you know how much land Abraham had actually received? Can anyone guess? Zero, zip. Absolutely nothing. He did have a well. And a tree. But uh, apart from that, he actually owns nothing of the land that God has promised him. But with the death of Sarah, uh, he wants to honour his beloved wife, and so he buys the burial tomb, trusting that God will keep his promise to him and to Sarah after he has died. Because ultimately, he sees himself as a foreigner. The land is not his home. Have a look at verse 4. Um, As he speaks to the locals, this is how he thinks of himself. I am a foreigner and stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so that I can bury my dead. So um, it looks like for Abraham to buy a little portion of the land is actually sort of to taste what's to come after the grave. And so as a foreigner, uh, 
it's not so straightforward to buy land. And so uh, he goes through this business transaction uh, and he, he will go and talk to the people of the land uh, to make sure that this deal to buy the land will go through properly. Abraham is well respected in the land and the Hittites, the people, the local people, are happy for him to bury his uh, Sarah in the tomb. But Abraham wants to ensure that the, that, the, that the place in which he buries Sarah will be his and will, uh, will be his uh, own outrightly. And so he does the deal proper. Um, he does it at the city gate. I assume that's where all the business deals are done, at the city gate. Uh, he does it in the presence of locals. Uh, he wants all the locals to know. And so this, this deal is done in public in some sense. And he pays the price of the field, the first price he's been given, he pays the price of that. And now we know that Abraham's not afraid to negotiate. Uh, He negotiated with God. So you think, oh yeah, he could probably negotiate with someone about land. But surprisingly, he just accepts the first offer. And to be honest, the 400 shekels of silver seems like a lot. I, I don't know what property prices were like back then. But um, if you were uh, to go along in Israel's history, Jeremiah bought a field for 17 shekels of silver. King David bought the threshing floor and some oxen thrown in for 50 shekels of silver. And this was later on. And so if you calculate inflation, I think he's, well, I think he hasn't got a great deal. Why does he seem to pay a lot of money for a place to bury Sarah? Well, I think part of the reason is that he wants to make sure the deal is done properly and that no one can criticise or uh, accuse him of not doing the right thing. But I think the real reason is because he's confident of the promises of God that they will uh, be fulfilled uh, even if he doesn't see them. And so he's happy to invest. Invest now because God will... Uh, keep his promises after he and Sarah have died. And the beautiful thing about buying the land was actually a sort of future investment for his descendants. Uh, Isaac would be buried there, Rebecca would be buried there, and Jacob, who would happen to be in Egypt, where, would he, where does he want to be buried? Back in the land that God had promised Abraham. See, buying the land, actually uh, trusting that God would fulfill his promises, also was a testimony to his descendants to say, trust the promises, God will fulfill them. And so Abraham is happy to pay full price and invest in the land. Uh, And as a foreigner in the land, he looked forward to God's promises after he dies. And I think um, this is not a new thing. I think Abraham believed in resurrection because remember when he took his son, when God asked him to sacrifice his son, Uh, What was he trusting? He was trusting God, if he were to sacrifice his son, could raise him from the dead. And if that wasn't enough, uh, uh, he, he, he got to see God raising Sarah's womb from the dead, that they were able to have a son. He believed in resurrection. He believed that God would one day fulfill the promises of land, offspring and blessing. He didn't hope in this life alone. And, uh, and for us, 
Well, it's even more so that we too are also foreigners and strangers in this land because of what Jesus has done. Um, There's that beautiful scene where Jesus is comforting his disciples and he shares with them that he's going to die to prepare rooms. He's going to prepare a home, an eternal home in his father's house. And he'll come back to be, to bring the disciples to be with him. And when Jesus died, uh, he had to borrow a tomb. But thankfully, he only had to borrow it for three days. Uh, He didn't have to buy the tomb because he wasn't going to stay there, was he? And so for us, uh, of course, uh, we see uh, God fulfilling, keeping promises, but only partially in Jesus because we know that uh, one day when Christ returns, all promises to Abraham, uh, fulfilled in Christ, will be completed. And that includes land for us as children of the promise. And so uh, we're encouraged, aren't we, to be reminded that we may not see God's promises fulfilled, but we know that he will keep his promises even after we die. And we see as well that in the resurrection of Jesus, we have absolute proof that of the new creation. This is Jesus is representing the new land, the new creation that we all look forward to. An eternal hope that will never perish, spoil or fade because of death. And so Abraham's actions may seem strange, forking out such a big lot of money for so little amount of land, but he knew he was looking beyond the grave, confident in God, and we can have more confidence, can't we? more confidence than Abraham because of the resurrection of Jesus that this present life and this present world is not our home. We too are aliens and strangers. And so if we were to grapple and and grasp that truth that we are aliens and strangers, how may that help you um, to not hold on to things of this world, the temporary things of this world so hard? How, how, how does it help you to actually let go of those things? And more importantly, invest. Invest in the eternal life, the life to come, the life beyond the grave. Abraham expected God to fulfill his promises beyond the grave. Um, we surely can invest expecting that God will come through um, as well beyond the grave. But what about children? Because um, chapter 24 is a lot about Abraham arranging a marriage, trying to orchestrate um, offspring. Um, we've, we've been here before, haven't we, when Sarah and Abraham tried to orchestrate offspring. How did that go? Oh, that was a schmozzle, wasn't it? A, an absolute schmozzle with Hagar, with Ishmael. So um, what about um, chapter 24 when Abraham seeks to um, arrange a marriage for his son? Because you can understand why maybe Abraham's a bit concerned about the promises. Because Sarah has dead, there's no way that um, they're going to have any more children. And Isaac is probably in his late 30s and um, he's not married yet. So um, does Abraham put up his feet and relax? No, he gets to work. But it's a little bit different to what it was like when uh, him and Sarah tried to uh, 
put in, in their own effort to create God's promises. And the second thing I want us to see in chapter 24 is this. Abraham, although wanting to arrange this marriage, actually he wants to ensure God's covenant promises are passed on to the next generation. Uh, he's not simply just sitting there waiting to die. He wants to continue the work to make sure that God's promises will go from Isaac to the next generation. Because the covenant promises are in limbo, but he seeks to work out how he can ensure that they get passed on. But with a difference. You see, Abraham trusts in the Lord's provision. We see Abraham's servant, who he entrusts to get the job done, also trusting in the Lord's loving faithfulness. And this is the key difference to earlier on. Abraham has grown, he's changed. He trusts in the Lord's provision. And so we're going to look at chapter 24 in a little bit more detail and see how Abraham seeks to make sure the promises get passed on to the next generation. Well, he entrusts his servant to carry out the work. But he explicitly tells his servant not to get a wife from the people of the land, the, the descendants of, the, of Canaan, the Canaanites and Hittites. And um, why is that? It'd be so much easier, wouldn't it, just to, to get a wife from the land that he's in. Uh, Abraham's well known. Uh, he's, he's pretty wealthy as well. That, sometimes that might be appealing, maybe to shallow, superficial uh, ladies. But... Um, uh, but he's well known. It would be easier, much easier to be able to uh, get a wife from the land. But whether or not Abraham knows, um, we as readers of Genesis know um, that um, one of Noah's son, Ham, who happens to be the, son of, the father of Canaan, exposes Noah's shame and is cursed. And so the result is the descendants from Ham, Noah's son, um, are cursed, and the Canaanites, Canaanites are the descendants here in the land. And so whether or not Abraham knows this or not, we know it, that if Abraham is to be a blessing, uh, he cannot take a wife from the line which is cursed. And so Isaac must not get a wife from the descendants of Canaan, uh, instead, Abraham tells him to get a wife from his own relatives. Now, of course, this is not an easy task. They didn't have smartphones back then. They didn't have pictures on their smartphones. Uh, he's not able to kind of, you know, go over to Homeland and say, hey, do you guys want to marry a, a guy I know? Anyone? All right. He, I don't even have a picture, but he's really handsome. Uh, to, it'll just sound like a bit of a scam. But so um, the servant does kind of ask some questions in verse 5 of chapter 24. The servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Fair question. Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Now, uh, if the servant fails, can he bring Isaac along with him? But Abraham is adamant that Isaac must not leave the land God promised. Verse 7. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land... And who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, so that you can get a wife for my son from there. So Abraham here is showing us a little bit something different. He's still holding on to God's words, insisting that God will provide. He hasn't just purely taken matters into his own hands. He's trusting God. But he wants to ensure that Isaac does not drift away from God's promise 
Uh, and if, if um, Isaac left to go back to his homeland, then the temptation would be for Isaac to possibly stay in Abraham's native land, his homeland, and never return. Um, but Abraham wants to ensure the covenant promises go to the next uh, generation. And so he um, encourages the, uh, Isaac to stay in the land where God has promised them. And so uh, uh, we see uh, the importance of the promises to Abraham in wanting Isaac to stick around. But Abraham also understands that the plan may not work. Verse 8, If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. Um, He trusts that if it's not going to happen, uh, then the servant does not is released from his oath. And so Abraham entrusts the servant with the task of uh, nomad wants a wife. It's a new... T- oh, don't worry about that. We see from the servant's behaviour um, this wonderful extension of Abraham um, because Abraham trusts the servant. The servant goes out also trusting in God's kindness to Abraham. Now, kindness can um, be translated as a, a loving, um, steadfast love, covenant, faithfulness. And so the servant is relying on God's covenant faithfulness to Abraham. He's relying on God's faithfulness to his promises. Just look at how um, the servant then starts to work out how he's going to get a wife for Isaac. Um, he takes ten camels loaded with a bunch of goodies belonging to Abraham. He heads to Abraham's hometown uh, he uses common sense. He goes to the well, and that's, this is where all the local women are going, so that, that's smart. So far, nothing's to suggest he's relying on God's steadfast love um, to Abraham. Um, but then he prays in verse 12, Lord God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. Uh, So here we see it's not just about God granting success to his plans. Uh, He's appealing to God to be true to his promises. And so the servant conjures up a ridiculous plan. Uh, And if if he does succeed, it will be obvious that it's only because God has allowed this to happen in his sovereign uh, control. Because um, uh, it, it does seem quite crazy. Now, the thing that isn't crazy about this plan is that he approaches a young woman and asks for a drink. This would be just sort of common hospitality. What is crazy about this plan is that he is expecting whatever woman he approaches to then be willing to water his ten camels. Now, what are camels generally known for being good at? Holding water. Uh, This is no small task. According to commentator John Walton... A camel that has gone a few days without water can drink as much as 95 litres. Now, they made a journey, 95 litres per camel, okay? So, uh, you know, stay tuned, or you people like to work out maths. Um, now, ancient jars used for drawing water, uh, they usually held no more than 11 litres. And so, with watering 10 camels until they were satisfied it possibly might mean that she had to go to the well and back to the trough 80 to 100 times. 
No, you would never do that. I mean, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. No, I will not do that. Thank you very much. And so uh, it's ridiculous unless God is involved and then it becomes reality. And get this, Rebecca comes along before the servant even finishes praying and you know God is at work. And she happens to be from Abraham's family. What? She, she, she's happy to do the... And she's happy to... She's Abraham's... Oh, man. Okay, so it's just ridiculous all around. And you can, you can imagine if it was a movie, you see the servant's jaw just drop and just think, oh, something's happening. And then he's left in no doubt that God is controlling the situation. Verse 26. Then the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. And again, the servant recognises God's loving kindness and faithfulness to Abraham. He trusts God's faithfulness to Abraham and he knows God's at work. Now, the story is recounted again. It's a really long chapter. It's one of the longest narratives uh, in Genesis. But I think that's just to make it super clear this is only because of God's will. And Rebecca's family recognise this too. They can see God's fingerprints all over what's happening. Uh, And of course, there's a whole lot more detail. Um, It's not quite a happily ever after. Um, You'll need to read on in Genesis to find out why. It's not a complete happily ever after. But for Abraham, his plan has worked. Uh, He's found a bride for Isaac and the survival of his family line can continue. Even though it still hangs by a few threads, it hangs by a few more threads and it can continue on. But Abraham can take encouragement that God honoured his efforts and he can take even great confidence that God is able to sovereignly work to ensure his plans and purposes will pass down the generations from one generation to the next. And so Abraham sees God's faithfulness to sustain his covenant promises um, to the next generation. Now, thankfully, uh, as New Testament followers of Jesus, um, we know God's faithfulness has been, he's been at it, for 28 generations, from Abraham to David to David to Jesus. And so that gives us uh, encouragement to see that God has successfully overseen Abraham's family line down through the years. And we see in Jesus the promises and blessing are no longer tied to being physical descendants of Abraham, but for us non-Israelites who sit outside of being blood relative, um, we don't need to be blood relative, which is wonderful news. Um, We simply need to be children, uh, not of blood, but children of faith in the the one in whom uh, ultimately Abraham was looking forward to, and that's Jesus. And it's only in Jesus who takes the curse of sin uh, that we can receive blessing, and it's this blessing Um, that we also want to encourage others to take hold of. Um, But for people here, you may not be trusting in Christ. And so I want to put out the invitation to you. Um, Why not let Jesus take away the curse of sin, the curse of you breaking God's law, and accept 
the fact that Jesus was cursed on the cross so that you might be blessed. Um, being blessed isn't about being having the right genetics. It's ultimately having the right trust in Jesus Christ, the ultimate descendant of Abraham. Now, we might finish up here, but um, before I finish up, you might be thinking, is this a passage that we should uh, use to work out God's will? Come up with a ridiculous plan and see if God will bless it. Well, I'm going to say probably not. Um, God's will is very clear in the New Testament and he just encourages us to get on with trying to work out how we might apply God's will um, that all, uh, in, in the New Testament. But what I want us to think about as we finish today, um, as we saw Abraham, his desire to see the next generation uh, come uh, to know the covenant promises, I think here there's an encouragement for us as the church to take responsibility to ensure that the gospel continues to pass, be passed on to the next generation. Um, Abraham sought to make sure that Isaac and the generations following um, would uh, enjoy the promises or trust the promises. Uh, and I think for us, um, there's something about us as a church that we can ensure that the gospel carries on to the next generation. That's our responsibility. And there's two things that I think we can do. Trusting in the sovereignty of God, we pray. But also trusting in the sovereignty of God, we invest. And we can invest because we know that God will keep his promises beyond the grave. Uh, we saw Abraham invest, knowing that he, that he was looking forward to an eternal future. And so we can pray and we can invest. And I think for us, um, we, we ought to keep praying, don't we, that God would ensure that the gospel goes to the next generation. Um, it's great to have kids involved in our congregation here. Um, but we, we, we ought to pray for um, that generation to take up the gospel. Um, we ought to pray as a church that we would raise up the next generation of gospel workers and leaders. We give thanks for our youth leaders and pray for them. We partner and pray for our kids' church leaders as well. We pray for institutions like Moore College and Youth Works as they seek to equip the next generation of the church's leaders. But we should pray that in Generation Alpha, that's uh, the next uh, generation, that in Generation Alpha... God would supply his church with the next generation of evangelists, apostles, prophets, pastors and teachers. And even if you don't have kids, you can pray for parents as they um, seek to bring up their children to know the Lord. And of course, as parents, we pray for our children to know and love the Lord Jesus. We pray trusting God's faithfulness to his covenant promises, trusting that he can enable the next generation to take up the gospel, even if we don't ever get to see those prayers answered. Nothing can happen if God does not grant success. But secondly, we, also, um, we ought to invest um, time, energy and money. And it's wonderful that we do here, and it's a testimony, and a, I thank God for you, uh, as you've done that. 
Um, but also, I just want to say to parents, I think um, uh, it's tempting to think that to be a good parent, you need to give your children lots of opportunities and experiences. And I remember my parents, um, you know, they're trying to do their best, and so I'm not um, <laughs> uh, criticising them. But they would, you know, they would convince me to practice, you know, say, oh, you should practice your piano. Uh, and, it's, and they'll say to me, because we never had the opportunity, and I'm just like, oh, man, okay. Uh, and I should have listened, but I was an idiot. But as much as education, music and sport and extracurricular activities are good things, helping our kids know and love the Lord Jesus to navigate this world as aliens and strangers uh, as they look for the world to come, that's, that's way um, more important. Now, it's, it's okay to... Those things, they're beautiful gifts of God. But I think it's also okay to say no to opportunities and experiences and to keep prioritising teaching and guiding, supporting and helping our children love God and love their neighbour. Now, it's not that easy. And I think for parents, it's, it's a little, I think it's even trickier um, with kids growing up in a digital world and then add the confusion with sexuality and identity, and then there's the growing lack of tolerance. Uh, it's not easy. But the gospel is what we need, and it's especially what any generation needs. But I think um, we've been encouraged to think about, well, how can we pray and invest so that the next generation um, will um, take the gospel on under God, and um, flourish as well. Um, now, if you don't have kids here, well, you can still take an interest in youth leaders, mentoring them, uh, the kids' church leaders. You know, after church, when we have supper, you can ask them, how was it? Um, uh, and, you know, um, encourage them uh, with that. Um, when we think about training and investing in training as well, um, particularly ministry apprentices, um, that takes great cost, doesn't it? And it doesn't maybe look as wise as, as uh, what you could be doing, the money to, to gain riches now, but we're looking to the eternal future as well, where um, we'll see the riches of investing in that um, come to fruition. Well, as church under God, we want the next generation reached with the gospel. Abraham sought to ensure the promises continued in the next generation. What can we do? under God, to see the gospel go to the next generation. Well, um, we finished Abraham. Some of you are thinking, whew, finally, thank you. Um, but it's been great, isn't it? Because Abraham has shown us that um, with all his faults, um, the way that he showed his faithlessness, um, he still clung on to the promises of God and God still credited him with righteousness by faith and even when we, get, when we stuff it up, when we get things wrong, um, we're still justified by faith in Jesus. And so that's a great comfort and relief uh, that even the biggest hero of our faith can also be the biggest dud of our faith as well. I hope that's okay to say Abraham. We'll, I'll talk to him when we head into the new creation. Uh, hopefully he's all right with that. But um, I'll pray and let's uh, um, ask God to help us. Um, Father, we... Um, Thank you so much um, that you have um, given us the promises uh, from Abraham to us through Christ, that we have blessing, uh, that we have a land, a new creation to look forward to. Father, we are strangers and aliens in this world, 
um, help us to not cling so, so strongly to the things of this world, but to continue to look forward beyond the grave uh, to when you will completely fulfill all your promises. Um, Father, we thank you so much that um, um, you are, you've been faithful over the generations, faithful to Abraham, uh, and also that you have sought to see those covenant promises um, trickle down to Jesus as well. And having received those promises by faith, Lord, we would love for the gospel to continue to, to go out to the next generations and the generations after that. And so would you help us to work out under your sovereignty how we might encourage future generations uh, to know and love the Lord Jesus. Um, we thank you for the children in our church and our youth. Uh, Lord, uh, help them to continue to love you with all their heart and to love their neighbour as themselves and to make uh, Jesus uh, known among the nations. And we ask that for ourselves as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.